Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing David Greenlees. David is a professional software tester originally from Adelaide, Australia, and currently living in Manhattan, working for the consulting firm Doran Jones. David has published a book on LeanPub, Software Testing as a Martial Art, in which he draws on his knowledge and experience of martial arts to communicate ways to optimize software testing within a team or organization. David is an avid contributor to the testing community and blogs at marshalltester.wordpress.com and usology.com, and you can learn more about him on his website at dmg.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about David's professional interests, his book, his experience using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. Uh, so thank you, David, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. Hey, thanks, Anna. I really appreciate it. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you can tell us how you first became interested in software testing and uh, sure. how your career sort of developed. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, I actually go on a little bit of the journey uh, in the book, um, but I guess uh, for the purposes of the, uh, the podcast, I'll, uh, I'll trim it down a little bit. Um, so like most people in software testing, I actually fell into it. Um, it's, it's pretty rare to come across somebody that's you know, going through senior school and ask them what they want to do when they grow up, and they'll say, uh, I want to be a software tester. Um, you don't really hear that too often. Um, so basically, I uh, um, was uh, managing a McDonald's store, actually, in uh, my hometown back in Adelaide in Australia. And, um, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting. Um, anyone that's worked in McDonald's before, I'm sure, would say the same thing. Uh, long hours, very little pay, and, uh, but great training, I guess, customer service focus, which was brilliant. Um, and I basically took a job in an Australian government organization in a call center um, to try and step into a bit more of a professional environment and work out what I, what I, what I wanted to do when I grow up. Um, and so I uh, worked in the call center for about 18 months. Um, it wasn't really the environment for me. I'm not really a, a huge fan of talking on the phone all day. Um, and so basically we had some visitors from uh, the software testing center um, of the same department and uh, basically, I grabbed one of those guys and said, um, you know, what, what can I do to get across to the software testing center? And uh, went for a, a, an introductory uh, meeting with them and then uh, sort of went on to a five-week uh, project as a, a software tester, just executing test cases on some software. And um, I guess they liked what I did and I enjoyed it. And so I, I stayed there and never went back to the call center, um, which was a bit of a sort of a career-defining uh, moment for me. Uh, and from that point on, I uh, spent eight years doing various roles uh, in the software testing center for that, that government department. And then uh, eventually, uh, I guess I sort of worked out that I, I needed to expand my knowledge and experience. Um, so it was actually headhunted by a consultancy um, who had just bought a small company in Adelaide. And uh, so I sort of bit the bullet, so to speak, uh, got to 10-year mark, took my long service leave and, and left. Uh, joined the consultancy um, and did a, a, did a few different gigs uh, with them um, and basically um, have just been uh, bouncing around different clients since then, um, uh, getting involved in the software testing community more, uh, which we can go into more later if, if you'd like to. And uh, from that moment, got to, uh, got to a few international conferences, uh, got to speak at uh, Star Canada in Toronto in uh, 2014. And then a month later, went to Let's Test uh, in Sweden. And that was the moment where uh, my now boss said to me, hey, how would you like to work in New York? Um, and at the, at, at the time, I sort of laughed it off. 
as a as a bit of a, a too big a move with a with a wife and a, a young daughter. Um, but got home and sort of mentioned it to my wife, and she said, "Well, why not?" Uh, and so one thing led to another, and now I'm here working for Doran Jones um, and uh, doing a program test management position uh, for a, a global financial institution. Um, so it's been a, a, a pretty interesting ride, um, almost 15 years now, uh, software testing. Um, and obviously that is the very, very trimmed down version of it, Len. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, thanks for that. That was great. Um, yeah, I would recommend to anyone listening um, to uh, buy David's book and check out the section at the beginning. It's, really, it's a really um, well-written story. Um, I remember one particular detail where um, you talk about how at the call center you actually had to account for the time you went to the bathroom? Yeah, yeah. So I, I wrote that in the book um, uh, thinking that most people probably think that's a joke, um, but actually it wasn't a joke. We had to we had a, a, a sheet called a variation sheet, and every time you were off the phone, when you should have been off the phone, you needed to write down uh, you know, how long for and why, uh, and that included uh, restroom breaks. Um, so that was one of the many reasons why the call center and I uh, didn't mix too well. And uh, were your managers convinced that this process improved productivity? Uh, uh, well, it was such a long time ago. Um, I, we had some we had some very very uh, highly process driven managers, so, so I'm sure they did. Uh, we had others that uh, basically were just doing as they were told, um, and we had some rebels, um, but. Without going into too many details, they didn't end up staying uh, too long for uh, reasons you can only imagine, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so this is kind of a long question, um, but um, since it's so central to your book, and just because I find the subject interesting personally, I'd like to ask you some questions about martial arts. Um, uh, I guess in this sense, you could say you have a second origin story to tell, um, <laughs> how you became interested in martial arts in the first place. Um, and uh, I was very interested when you mentioned in the book that the first martial art you trained in was Taekwondo and that you started training when you were 19 because Taekwondo was the first martial art I trained in and I also started when I was 19. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so um, I was just wondering if you could say something about um, why you wanted to start studying martial arts and why you started with Taekwondo. Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, basically, I, I was actually thinking about this um, before we spoke, um, sort of anticipating a similar question. And um, the, the, the furthest back I can go is probably around the 80s um, when I was just a little, a little tyke um, and I used to watch uh, Monkey. I don't know if you're familiar with the TV series Monkey or Monkey Magic as it's known. Um, late 70s, early 80s, I think it was. Um, so look that one up and listeners look it up too because it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and basically there was a lot of uh, kung fu in that um, and I remember watching that and then grabbing a, a, you know, a broomstick and using it as a staff out in the yard, trying to, trying to spin it around and seeing what tricks I could do and hitting myself in the head way too many times to, to count. Um, and then that sort of progressed into, you know, martial arts films, uh, Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, Van Damme, um, all those, all those cool guys from the, the seventies and eighties. And, um, I, I always, I think I always wanted to train in martial arts um but we always sort of i guess weren't in the in the best place for it um in terms of uh, geographic location or, or difficulty getting there um and i played a lot of sport as well so you know we can't do everything 
Um, and then eventually when, when I got to that age of, you know, around 18, 19, um, and it was then up to me to, to do it, you know, I could drive myself and so on. Um, I actually found a, a, a taekwondo dojo uh, pretty close to the call center when I, when I started working there. And so I sort of said no more excuses and um, started, started training um, and did a lot of private lessons, so one-on-one lessons um, at the time. You know, as a 19-year-old, you've got nothing much else to spend your money on. So um, better that than other things, I'm sure you can imagine. And so it took me about six years, um, give or take, uh, to earn my black belt in uh, taekwondo. And then uh, my, my beautiful young daughter was born. Um, so I had a little bit of a break after that for a little while. And then, um, you know, moving house, uh, moving your family, all that kind of stuff. Um, I eventually got back into it at a, at a different gym. And started learning uh, jiu-jitsu, uh, kickboxing, boxing, uh, a little bit of karate as well. Um, and so currently I'm, I'm sort of in between uh, boxing and jiu-jitsu. I, I love both of them a lot. Um, I think if I had to choose a favorite, um, I would probably say jiu-jitsu at the moment. Um, there's just something about it that uh, fascinates me. Um, but always looking to try and learn something new if I can uh, fit it into my busy schedule. Um. That, that's a really interesting um, progression um, through those different different uh, martial arts. Um, I was wondering, actually, just this is a bit of an inside baseball question, but was it WTF Taekwondo that you were training in? Uh, no, it was uh, Mudu Kwan oh. uh, Taekwondo. Um, and so the, the Grandmaster um, had moved to uh, my hometown of Adelaide, um, I think it was back in the 70s or 80s, um, and he was a, you know, a small stature, um, older Korean man, um, and he was probably the first person to teach me never to underestimate your opponent um, because looking at him, you'd think uh, not a problem at all. Um, but then obviously when you um, you can see what he can do, um, he's absolutely amazing. Um, and so he'd been doing it since he could walk. Um, so he was like, I can't remember what the highest uh, ranking is in Taekwondo, ninth or 11th degree black belt, but that was him. Um, and he was part of the, the world Taekwondo Federation. Oh. He was, a um, one of the leaders, lead instructors and, um, chief referees at uh, the sporting events and so on. Um, and so it, it was just happened to be the style that he taught at the time. Um, and I, I haven't, I've never done any different styles of Taekwondo. I'm sure they're not too dissimilar. Um, but yeah, Mudokwon was, uh, the style that I was taught. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I, I used the acronym rather quickly there, but World Taekwondo Federation is what I yeah. meant. What, what I meant by WTF. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's a great that's a great answer. Um, uh, that was also um, I, I studied under the World Taekwondo uh, World Taekwondo Federation um, teacher myself. Um, Excellent. And you um you uh you I, and it's it's relevant in the book um, with the analogies that you use, but you talk a little bit about I mean very very respectfully, um, but about how. There are aspects of Taekwondo training that you that you found somewhat um, I don't know what the right, right word might be, but like limiting in the end. Yep. Um, and I was wondering. I know this is a this is a controversial thing to talk about, and people always speak about it again with very respectfully. But if you could if you could maybe say a little bit about what what your position is on that. Yeah, sure. So I think, um, like you said, with all due respect. Um, and it's not necessarily a, a reflection of uh, Taekwondo as a martial art, um, but possibly more on where I was taught. Um, I, I actually got to, like I said, six years and I got to my first degree 
um, black belt, Chodambo, uh, as it's known. And um, uh, basically the whole six years was no contact. So to get to a stage where you actually earn a black belt, um, for me personally now, in hindsight, I think that um, you should be conditioned uh, not just mentally but also physically as well. Um, having a black belt um, obviously carries um, a little bit of weight with it um, among a lot of people. A lot of people um, will think, you know, you've got a black belt, you're a deadly weapon. Um, and so while that might be true in a, in a, in a particular scenario that, that calls on taekwondo skills, um, in most other scenarios it may not actually be true at all. Um, and so I think while I, while I worked extremely hard um, and I, I built up a great level of technique to earn that black belt, um, I sort of felt as though there was something missing. Um, and I, I couldn't put my finger on it at the time um, because this was before I got into the whole mixed martial arts thing. Um, and also it was before I started reading, um, you know, the philosophies of, of Bruce Lee and, you know, there is no one style and, you know, take bits and pieces from all of them to, to suit whatever you need. Um, and so Taekwondo is a very, it's a very rigid uh, martial arts. Um, there's very set techniques um, and, you know, your punse or your kata in, in karate speak um, is, is a big part of you earning uh, your next grade. And for me, martial arts, while the, the, the discipline and the, the health and fitness has always been a, a great part of it, for me it's always been about um, self-defense. And especially since my, my marriage and my, my daughter was born, it's become more about protecting my, myself and my family. Um, and so having just one martial art being Taekwondo, um, it definitely feels like it's not enough for me. Um, and that's why in more recent years, I've definitely branched out, um, to try and learn different techniques. Um, and the second gym that I went to was definitely more in tune with that sort of philosophy in the fact that he, if you wanted him to teach you, um, a sport style of martial art or a martial art to go and compete in a competition, he would do that. But his preference um, was definitely to teach you how to survive um, if you needed to. Um, so it was very much, uh, I don't really like to say street style, um, but I guess that's probably the best way I can describe it, is that he taught you to survive on the street um, when all other um, you know, situations would say that you wouldn't. So that's, it's definitely my philosophy is uh, martial arts as a self-defense uh, first, um, and then if that leads into competition and that's what you want to do, then brilliant, go for it. Uh, and when it comes to, um, just to, to dive in there a little bit, to um, surviving on the street, um, I know that there's, there's you know, lots of different theories. Um, one of the ones I find quite, like, you know, that's spelled out um, quite compelling is the Krav Maga one where the first principle is get out of there. Yes. If you can. I mean, if there's nothing at stake, like you need to save someone's life or, you know, you're on a mission. Um, uh, what do you care? You know, get out of there. Um, <laughs> was that if you can? And that's your goal, right? And if you can't do whatever you need to do to then get out of there. Yes. Um, uh, is that consistent with is that the kind of style that your, your teacher you're describing was advocating? Along yeah, those lines? most definitely. I probably made it sound like he was a bit of an animal, um, <laughs> but. He, he's an animal in the true sense of the of the word. That he's a, he's a very compassionate, caring guy, um, and will look after his his family and his martial arts family um, uh, 
first and foremost. Um, but if he's ever if he was ever backed into a corner, um, you, you wouldn't want to be on the other side of that corner. That's for sure. Um, and so yeah, that that rings true with me as well. I mean, I, I have never um, touched wood uh, been in a situation where I've needed to actually use anything that I've been taught on the street, and uh, hopefully um, for the rest of my life, I never have to as well. Um, but there is a certain level of confidence that you have in knowing that you might be able to actually diffuse a situation if you needed to, um, especially when your your family and your loved loved ones are involved. Um, and yes, I mean for me and also for him as well, the first thing that um, I've always been taught um, by him and others as well is to uh, talk your way out of it first. So basically. <laughs> Do whatever you can to make sure nothing ever turns into a physical altercation. Um, and like you said, if you've, if you've got the opportunity and there's nothing at stake, then just walk away or perhaps run away depending on the situation um, because uh, as soon as it turns physical, um, it doesn't matter if you end up um, on top, so to speak. You're both going to lose anyway, uh, especially with the laws and so on these days. It doesn't matter if, if you perhaps were defending yourself, if you end up doing the unthinkable and, you know, putting someone's head against a cement ground, who knows what might happen. So it's just not worthwhile. So I would definitely walk away first, given the opportunity. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really, really great answer. Um, uh, I was wondering, you say, um, have you ever um, competed in a tournament or anything like that? No, so I haven't. Um, it's one of those things. Um, it, it's definitely something that I would like to do. Selfishly, I would like to do that just to, just to test myself. Um, and see how well I did, um, and see if I could I could put up with um, whatever was was given my way. Um, but once again, you have a you have a family, uh, you have a wife and a young daughter. Uh, it only takes one bad knock um, in the wrong position, um, and who knows what might happen. So I don't think it's something that I would ever do, um, purely because of the risk uh, involved. Um, I mean, having said that, uh, some of our sparring sessions can get reasonably brutal, um, but the beauty of a sparring session is that your, your instructor's there all the time and generally speaking, uh, in my experience anyway, uh, your opponent is just as ready to stop whenever you're ready to stop. So all you've got to do is put your hand up and it's done. So if for some reason it gets a little bit too rough, um, you can always stop it. You, feel, you have comfort in that when you're sparring. Um, so I think probably uh, rough sparring is as far as I'll ever go, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I I know from personal experience how how rough um, sparring can be, yeah. um, and how dangerous, um, especially actually when you're at an earlier stage of training. Um, you know, the most the most dangerous sparring partner is the one who just walked in the door. Um, yes, by by far. <laughs> um, uh, I, I guess I just have one more sort of direct uh, martial arts question, which is that you mentioned in the book that you you wish you'd started training earlier. Um, and I'm really curious about that because I've, I've thought about it quite a bit myself. Um, and I don't, the conclusion I've come to is that, um, uh, you know, without ever having been a teacher myself, right? So just limited to my own experience and what I've, what I've seen, um, is that actually starting later, I feel like it has a lot of advantages. I mean, obviously one should be doing you know, lots of activity when one's young, you know, sports and things like that. Um, but it, it seems to me that there's an advantage to starting you know, I mean, 19 isn't exactly mature, right? But like, you know, there's an advantage to starting learning fighting when you're a little bit older. 
um, as opposed to younger. I just I just always had that that sense of things that your approach to it is is different. Um, why why do you think that 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 starting training earlier is 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 an advantage? You know that's a that's an absolutely brilliant thing uh, that you say, Lynn. I haven't actually ever thought about it like that. Um, you sort of you're sort of talking about a, a different maturity level, perhaps when you when you get taught to be a, a lethal weapon, so to speak. Um, so um, that's really brilliant. So I guess when I say um, I wish I'd started earlier, um, that actually makes a lot of sense. And it, it, for me, I guess it was more. It's always been more about you know if you start younger you're more flexible, uh, you're more supple. Um, and if you, you know, you can learn the techniques earlier, um, you can do them for a longer period of time and then therefore hopefully get better at them. Um, I, I remember after six years of Taekwondo, I was about an inch away from being able to do the splits. Um, and it was, uh, something I'd never, ever, but I'm definitely not a naturally uh, flexible person. Um, <laughs> And now that I've had such a long break between doing that, um, I don't think I could ever do the splits again. Um, so I guess from that from that sense, uh, starting earlier, um, I think definitely would have been a huge advantage. Um, but but now that you mention it, I guess you can almost liken it to uh, you know adult students. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of un- university or college students uh, spend a lot of their time partying. Um, and, you know, doing all that, that kind of extracurricular activity instead of studying, whereas you find a lot of adult students um, at a mature level and they, they have, they're there for a particular purpose. They've, they've, done, their, they've done their stupid stuff as kids um, and now they realise this is what they want to do, so they, they go back to college or university and um, they're actually there to study and that's what they do. So I guess you could liken it to that, that sort of uh, scenario. If you start a little bit later, you're there for a particular purpose, whatever that may be, fitness, health, or self-defense, and you'll probably be a little bit more disciplined and a little bit more mature about your training. So that's actually a really good point, Lynn. I'm glad you mentioned that. Oh, well, well, thanks. Yeah, it's actually something I haven't really spoken with, with anyone about, really. So it's, uh, it's interesting <laughs> to, to try, and, try and test the idea out. Um, uh, actually, speaking of, of, of um, uh, university and, and also like martial arts training, um, you've got a great, great quote in your book, um, which I'm just going to read out and then ask you about. It, it goes, um, education is more a matter of socialization into tacit ways of thinking and doing than transferring explicit information or instructions. Um, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what this means to you and what you think an optimal environment for education generally might be given that that idea. Yeah, beautiful. So that's a that's a quote from Harry Collins, uh, tacit and explicit knowledge, um, which is a an absolutely brilliant book for probably many industries, um, but is particularly handy for uh, software testing. Um, and the fact that it's everything we do cannot be explicit, um, and we need to we need to understand that um, a lot of our work that we do in software testing uh, is a, a tacit knowledge. Um, and implicit information, uh, which cannot be made explicit. Um, and so I guess that for me, um, the, on, on reading that, the first thing I thought about was, um, you know, sparring, uh, punching a bag versus sparring. Um, and so from a martial arts aspect, um, you know, punching a bag is, uh, is, is great. Um, it helps with your strength um, and, and so on, but there's nothing quite like, 
sparring. Uh, a moving target uh, of different size, shape, um, different techniques, different skill levels. That practical experience um, is something that I don't think almost anyone could argue um, that there is a better way to learn than that. Um, I think I also mentioned in the book as well, my grandmaster's uh, supreme grandmaster who recently passed, um, unfortunately, um, had has or did have uh, people from all over the world um, come to train with him. Um, and the first thing he would do was is pair them up and just tell them to spar. Um, you know, he didn't have them stand in a line and, and follow his instructions. Um, he would get them to spar um, sort of as close as you can get to real-world training and practical experience. And then obviously he would guide them through that and show them techniques. But there's something to be said about that, I think, in the fact that a, a Supreme Grandmaster – um, would actually do that for his students rather than just try and, um, you know, direct them with a Simon Says style of training. And so I guess the second part of your question about the ideal um, environment for learning, um, it, learning is such a personal thing. Um, everyone learns differently. Um, although I think from my experience and most people I meet, um, most people learn better by doing. Um, so definitely put yourself in an environment where, you can get that practical experience. Uh, from a software testing point of view, I went to a lot of uh, training courses in my early career where we would sit down and just listen to the instructor, um, you know, death by dot point in uh, Microsoft PowerPoint. Um, and while theoretical learning in software testing is great, um, it, can, it can give you a start and just sort of help you to understand a little bit what software testing is about. There's nothing quite like actually testing a product um, to help you learn uh, using different techniques, different approaches. And so you need to put yourself in an environment where you can actually have that, that practical experience. Um, and I talk about it in the book as well. The software testing community um, is something that, that has given that to me. Um, it, basically, it's a community of testers that are all uh, keen on, on learning and becoming better at software testing and making our industry better and better recognized for the value that we can add. Um, and so we, we constantly challenge ourselves um, with little online challenges. Um, we send each other little products that we can test and, you know, say who finds the best bug and all that kind of stuff. And while it, while it can be fun, a fun little game, um, basically it's all learning um, and it's all practical experience. So next time you're on the job and, um, you know, the executives are looking at you to, to find important bugs fast, you can call on all these experiences um, and approaches and lay down the best one for that particular context. Yeah, I was wondering that leads me to my next question, which I guess this was all kind of building up to, um, but I was wondering if you could talk directly about what, what you think the connection is between software testing and martial arts that you, that you write about so well in your book. Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think, I mean, software testing is such a, a huge uh, broad subject as per uh, martial arts, I guess. So I think there's a few different uh, linkages that can be made. I don't think there's one general thing that brings it together. Um, but for me personally, um, and calling on sort of the Bruce Lee philosophy again, um, basically in software testing, um, traditionally we've been governed by um, particular processes and standards around how we should actually test software. Um, and a, lo a lot of people call these best practices. Um, and 
I'm a firm believer that there are no such thing uh, as best practices. Um, there's good practices in particular contexts and particular projects, but there is no one best practice. Um, and I guess for me, martial arts is the same, like I'd spoken about earlier, um, knowing Taekwondo. So if I was uh, in a situation where I could, um, you know, unleash my Taekwondo kicks, I might be fine. But uh, if there's two or three guys on top of me, um, Taekwondo is not going to do me any good at all. So I need to uh, call on perhaps some jiu-jitsu or wrestling. Um, it's the same in software testing. Um, you have, we have a best practice for, uh, you know, writing test cases uh, up front before you start testing the product. And um, there's very, very minimal situations where that actually makes any sense at all. So we need to actually have different ways of approaching uh, testing a product where we don't actually write test cases at all. You know, we explore the product instead and learn about the product and, and discover information as we go, um, you know, saving time. And so I, I, I guess the, the biggest analogy that I pull is, uh, you know, there is no one style. There is no one style of martial arts. There is no one style of software testing. Um, you need to experience many different styles and approaches so that you can use the best one uh, at the time uh, to get you what you need as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, theme in your book. This, um, I don't know exactly how to put it, but this sort of two, you know, dividing up this sort of approaches into two opposing ways. And one is where it seems to be where people sort of bring some kind of predetermined theoretical framework arbitrarily onto a project so you know the idea of like we've got to like treating treating the tester like just some kind of you know uh in in like sort of undifferentiated unit uh in a group of you know things that carry out tasks and so you issue them some instructions like you know here are some pre-written tests go through them step by step and come back to me um you know as opposed to one which takes advantage of the fact that it's a human being that's yeah. doing the testing with consciousness and experience and maybe even some drive and curiosity and saying, you know, each case is different. Each context is different. Um, take that, you know, knowledge guided by experience that you have and uh, go into the product, understand what it is, understand what the goals are because they're different sometimes in different cases and yeah. then take that approach. Yeah, and it, it can be different for different people at the same time. I mean, let's let's not forget. I mean, if it, it, it might not be so bad in a in a small startup where the shared goals are are fairly obvious, um, but in say a, a huge financial organization or any other big organization, there is always office politics. Uh, there's always hidden agendas. Different people want things done for different reasons, um, and so. You not only have to think about um, you know the human being that is actually testing the product. You've got to think about the hundreds of human beings that are they're interested in the work that you're doing um, and the reasons why they are interested in the work that you're doing. And that's going to change the way that you present the information, how you discover the information. Um, you know, software testing and software development is a is a human. It's a social activity, and we can't restrict ourselves to a process that doesn't allow for um, John to be sick for a week. It doesn't allow for 
Mary to um, go out on mat leave and, and all that kind of stuff. There's all these human aspects um, that go into software development. That these these best practices or these standards just don't allow for. Um, and so that's why uh, myself and others in our community caution people against trying to implement um, standards and best practices um, without the knowledge that it's just not going to work exactly how it's written. You need to remain flexible um, and don't be surprised if you need to throw your very fancy, expensive process out. Yeah, that's a, that's a, great, that's a great answer. Um, uh, <laughs> you, you, you talk also about um, the conditioning of the mind for software testing, and I was wondering if you could, wondering if you could explain what you mean by that. So definitely all about uh, education. Um, for me personally, self-education. Um, I've read a, a wonderful book by uh, one of the best software testers I know, James Bark, um, uh, Secrets of a Buccaneer Scholar. And um, in that, he goes into you know the fact that he's a, a high school dropout uh, like myself, so I could relate to that as well, and um, how he basically uh, didn't conform to the traditional education institution um, and how it works or the set curriculums and how he he buccaneered his own knowledge um, and for me um, conditioning of the mind in software testing is is definitely all about that uh, working out where your passion is uh, for your job and um, you know where where it's leading you um, and going out there and researching and educating yourself on on the different aspects of what's going to get you there um, unfortunately in uh, I say unfortunately, it's you know not necessarily a bad thing, but in our industry, um, and especially as a consultant, um, you'll, you'll often end up on a gig where you're doing something that perhaps isn't what you want to do every day. Um, but for me, I try and pull the little pieces out of it um, that will that lead towards my ultimate goal, um, which seems to change week by week. Um, but I, I guess... Um, a huge part of conditioning the mind in software testing is um, learning. And like I said before, everyone learns differently. Um, so you need to find what you're passionate about and do the best you can to put yourself in a position where it becomes part of your working day. If you end up having to um, learn about something that is completely, you know, not in line with what you're doing during work hours, it doesn't align with your family life, it's going to end up being a chore. Um, so try and position yourself somehow um, to, be, to make it part of your day. I guess it's like exercise, you know. A lot of people say exercise has to be part of my day, otherwise I just won't do it. So, you know, find a gym on the way to work or something like that. Uh, so it's a similar thing for the conditioning of the mind and learning in software testing. Uh, yeah, that actually leads me to my next question, which is, um, and I guess very, something I, I, I had actually never heard of before, um, but I think it's probably a very big part of your profession, but um, what is context-driven testing? Cool, context-driven testing. So um, one of the founders um, who I'd already mentioned, James Bark, um, uh, more recently is described as, as three different things, uh, an approach to software testing, uh, a paradigm or a way of thinking, and also a community um, uh, of software testers. And I guess for me personally, context-driven testing is, is all about 
testing um, within the context and being driven by that context. Now, a context is just a, a, a set of situations or a set of circumstances um, that, that build your current situation. And so while traditionally, like I said before, we may be uh, told that a best practice is to, to write a whole bunch of test cases up front um, before you actually start testing the product, what if you've only got a day to test the product? Are you going to write all the test cases up front or are you just going to jump into the product and, and test it straight away? So having one day is part of your context. So you need to be driven by that context. And um, another, I guess another aspect um, is the community part that I'd spoken about as well. And um, it, basically it's a, like a group of, of software testers um, that align themselves with context-driven testing and, and try and test driven by their context. Um, and the, it's, it's really quite an amazing group um, in terms of knowledge sharing. Um, we all sort of we back each other up. Um, we challenge each other. Um, you know, if, if, someone, if someone says to me, um, well, I, I think this way that I do testing is the best way, instead of me going, oh, that's great, I'll say to them, well, why? Why do you think that's the best way? Um, you know, are there any, any other ways that you've thought about? So constantly challenging each other and debating each other to try and actually make us better. Um, and um, I guess being a little bit cynical of the ideas that we're given um, and challenging those, uh, not because we disagree with them, but because we want to try and make them better. Um, so that's a huge part of the contracts-driven uh, community as well. And so I guess for me it's just it's, it's been comfortable because I was never – I was never a huge fan of just following steps in a test case and, and following a script. Um, so I've found comfort in a, in a group of people and an approach to testing that doesn't necessarily call on that. It calls on uh, exploration and uh, flexibility of thought, flexibility of vision uh, when you're testing a product um, and to question constantly, which is another huge part of uh, the context-driven community. Uh, yeah, and is it a, I just... Is it a global community? Um, I mean, is it, it, is, is, is there an east-west divide or anything like that in, in software testing communities? No, so there's a, I speak a little bit about the five schools of software testing uh, in the book, um, and I would encourage people to, to look that up if they're interested in it. But as far as the context-driven uh, testing community goes, yes, very much global. Um, you know, there's there's pockets of, of people who are more vo vocal than others, um, but... Um, I know people in, in Europe, uh, North America, obviously, I'm here. Um, we've started lots of great context-driven community work uh, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, where I'm from as well, um, South Africa. So, I mean, it, it, Asia, every, every continent, um, we have context-driven testers. Um, and like I said, some a lot more vocal than others. Uh, something about North America, um, I think people are a lot more vocal, a bit louder here, perhaps. Um, but it's definitely a global um, a global community um, and um, we're just, like I said before, we're interested in, in bettering our craft, not only to make it more interesting for ourselves, but to also show people that software testing isn't something just for a bunch of execution monkeys that you can get off the street. You know, it's, it's a thoughtful process um, and we can ask questions that add a huge amount of value to software development projects um, 
Uh, and so listen to us. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. My next question was, was related to that actually, which was, which was, um, you know, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you say in your book that it took you three years to write it. Um, and, uh, I was wondering, you know, what, what the inspiration was to start a project like that and who the intended audience is. I mean, is it other people in the context of the testing community or is it testers generally, or, you know, anyone engaged in software development? Yeah, sure. So um, I think I mentioned in the book as well, the, the selfish response is um, it was basically when it started, it was just all about me. Um, I've had a goal for a while now to to write um, and I, I blog uh, fairly regularly and I've got a few you know published articles and stuff like that. But to actually write a book has been a goal of mine for quite a while. Uh, my inspiration was uh, actually an author by the name of uh, Peter Convary. Um, an Australian author who's, who's written a, a wonderful uh, fantasy novel series. Um, he was actually a colleague of mine and I was part of the review team on a few of those books that he's written. Um, and I guess he indirectly showed me that um, you didn't have to be a full-time author to write a book. You know, you can actually do it in your spare time. And there are, you know, wonderful places like LeanPub um, that make it very easy for people to uh, to get their content out there. Um and sorry, what was the second part of the question? Uh, oh, and yeah, who is the intended audience? Um, oh, yes. Beautiful. So I guess, um, well, I mean, I guess the immediate audience will be the, the context-driven testing community because it's, a, in essence, it's a, it's a book sort of about context-driven testing along with martial arts. Um, and being part of that community, um, many people know that I'm writing the book um, and have been expecting it for the last three years. Um, and so... That'll be the that'll be the immediate audience, um, but hopefully, as as with everything we do in the context driven community, we, hopefully it spreads a little bit beyond our context driven community into the wider software testing community, um, and even just if one paragraph makes a difference to somebody and changes the way that they they view software testing or encourages them to learn something new about it, then I'll be a happy man. Oh, that's a great that's a great line. If one paragraph can have an impact, that's a Totally true, um, I think, in, in, in my reading experience anyway. Um, uh, actually, on that note, there are you know people who listen to this podcast who are also self-published authors. Um, and uh, you know, so there's some, some, some details about successful self-publishing that people really like to hear about. And in your case in particular, in addition to writing a good book um, with a compelling idea behind it, um, that's obvious from, from the title, um, you also have a really cool cover. Um, and I was wondering, I mean, this is a very important part of, of doing this. Um, and I just wanted to ask if you had it done by a professional cover designer or if you did it yourself or if it was by a friend. Yeah, sure. So I wish I had those mad skills then. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, they're not mine. Um, I'll stick to the martial arts and the software testing. Um, so in software testing, we, uh, we raise what we call bugs. Um, or sometimes known, more commonly known as defects in software, um, but we prefer to call them bugs. And so the whole concept was to have a, have a bug uh, dressed as a, as a ninja um, or at least some sort of martial artist. Um, I actually went to uh, Fiverr.com and went through a whole bunch of artists on there, um, found some um, uh, illustrations that I really, really liked um, and just got one of the artists on there to produce that one and the uh, inside illustration as well. Um, it didn't cost me a lot of money. Um, I think the result was quite good. Um, and so in that respect, it was actually quite easy. It took a couple of weeks to turn around. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I guess I should probably do a little bit of a shout out to Fiverr. Um, uh, Alice McDonough, who's transcribing this uh, podcast interview for our for our website, is also uh, part of Fiverr. So um, that's great to hear that 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 uh, that institution is, is used for so many different different great reasons. Um, uh, I was wondering, actually. Um, how imp I know that you you write um, at the beginning of your book about all the people who who um, helped you along the way, um, and I was wondering if um, post publication, you it's it's you know part of your process to uh, maybe through feedback from LeanPub or directly from readers to actually update your book and publish new versions. Is that something that you have done or you're intending to do? Yeah. So I um I. I... I did uh, update a version quite quickly. Um, someone spotted, uh, as testers do, someone spotted a, a typo in there pretty quickly. Um, so I, I managed to update um, that very quickly, which is something that LeanPub makes quite easy, which is great. Um, and yes, I have. Uh, you, you'll notice that I have a, a couple of different uh, software testers that contribute chapters. Um, that you know, software testers who are also martial artists. Um, and a, a goal of mine was also was always to include some some thoughts from other people about what, soft, what about what martial arts has taught them uh, in, in software testing. And um, one one such person is uh, Ben Kelly, um, who hasn't finished his chapter yet but um, has assured me it's about 50% done. So as soon as that's done, I'll definitely be including that and updating it. Um, and I was speaking to someone earlier too that when you're publishing something like this, um, it's a really difficult thing to know when to stop. Um, so total duration took me three years to write. Obviously, I wasn't writing that whole time. Otherwise, it would be a 1,000 pages. But it's one of those things that as you keep training in martial arts and as you keep software testing, you keep learning more and more and more. So... I could just keep writing and keep putting new lessons in there. Um, but it, there came a point where I had to, I had to publish, uh, too many people were asking for it. Um, but obviously in, in, you know, in six to 12 months time, if I've got enough, uh, extra material, then, uh, most definitely I'll add to it, make a second edition or just update this one or, and uh, another good thing about uh, lean pub is that, you know, people have paid for it. Um, and if you make an update, they get the new update, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, uh, I was wondering um, uh, if if there was one thing, I mean, since we're chatting directly, um, if there was one thing we could improve on LeanPub or one feature we could add um, that you sort of you know noticed was missing or something that would be just nice to have. Um, yeah, what sure. Would that, what would that be? So uh, definitely a nice to have. Um, I don't know if other authors would experience it, but for me personally, I, I mean, obviously, I, when I kicked this project off, I just started writing it in uh, Microsoft Word, um, and then obviously it's the application that I'm used to. I'm used to the formatting and the you know the various tools that go with it, and so to have some sort of uh, conversion from Word to you know EPUB or or Mobi um, that wasn't. Uh, such a nightmare to use um, would be fantastic. Or even if it wasn't like an automated thing, if you offered uh, a service, um, you know, with a small fee, um, I would definitely be happy to pay uh, for that because it's just a, a lot of work to do. Um, so, if, yeah, some sort of service that offers, you know, conversion to the different formats um, I think would be definitely valuable. Um, and knowing how difficult it is, um, I would understand if there was a fee involved and I'm sure other people would as well. Yeah, you mean specifically from, from Microsoft Word? Well, for me specifically from there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, um, uh, 
the good news is um, actually that we that's what I was kind of working on this week, um, and we actually had a big chat internally about it um, just yesterday. Um, and so I don't know when that's going to be deployed, but the ability to work directly in Word, um, and then the way you can now in plain text, um, and click a button and get PDF, EPUB, and MOBI output automatically is something that we're going to be adding um, as a separate service. Wow, man, you let me know I'll be your first customer. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's um, there's a long story behind all that, um, but uh, yeah, it's something that we're going to add. Um, the one, the one thing is that you know, for books and your, yours isn't, so I know this doesn't apply to yours, but for books that are heavily formatted, um, where people have you know like centered images or done floating images and stuff like all all of the crazy like you know. Um, Microsoft Word is kind of like the Starship Enterprise of like doing stuff, right? Although that's, yeah. I shouldn't have used the positive comparison, <laughs> but um, but you know what I mean is like there's so much in it, like it can it can do, do mail merge, it can do any endless number of things, um, and so obviously we'll never be able to build something that you know automatically converts a heavily formatted Word document into like EPUB or something yeah. like that. But there actually are a surprising number of things. That, that, you know, take account of actually probably like 99% of book writing cases um, that actually we, we figured out that we can convert um, directly with the click of a button. So hopefully that's something we'll have out sooner rather than later. Oh, that's awesome news, Len. I look forward to it. <laughs> um, uh, so I guess um, I don't really have any more, more questions. I was just wondering if there's anything that I, I didn't ask that you wish I had and you'd like to say something about it. Not specifically, I guess. Um, uh, thank you very much for uh, interviewing me and taking the time. Um, and I guess I just wanted to to also mention um, that I've started uh, a, another little ebook, um, lessons learned from my first agile project. Um, and I guess I wanted to mention to you specifically that I'm actually doing this one in the the browser uh, writing in LeanPub. Um, and it's been a pretty good experience so far. So um, hopefully that will, will end up being on multiple different publishing versions at the end of it. Okay. Great. Well, that, that's great news. Um, yeah, well, th thanks very much for your time uh, and for doing the interview and for being on the LeanPub podcast and for being a LeanPub author. Thanks, Len. I really appreciate it. Thanks.